Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So Revelation chapter 14, you know, as we've been going through the book of Revelation, uh, you know, there's been times where there's been these interludes that I've been, I've been talking about where, you know, you're in this chronology and then all of a sudden it stops and there's this interlude and, and then it, the chronology picks up again. And, and uh, for some people it can get really confusing. Uh, so I kind of want to do a little bit of a, just a little bit of a, let's catch a kind of a, maybe a summary or kind of get us up to speed together. So where does chapter chapter 14 fit in the prophetic timeline. You know, chap, uh, Re- the book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that ha- has its own divine outline just laid out for us. Uh, in chapter 1, John is told to write down the things which you have seen. And the things that he has seen, he saw Jesus and his resurrected glory in heaven. And then he's told to write the things which are. That's the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. Speaking of the church age, it's applicable to our church as well. It's applicable to us as individuals, as, as believers, as members of the church. And then the next portion of the Bible, chapter four th- or Revelation 4 through 22, the things that will take place after this. After what? After the church age. So that's the divine outline of the book of Revelation. And I want to kind of, kind of breeze through some of this, kind of summarize each of the chapters to where we get to where we're at this morning. So in Chapters 4, verse 1, John is told, come up, here's a voice that calls out, come up here, and I will show you the things which must take place after this. It's a picture of the church being raptured. And so we get to chapters 4 and 5, and John is caught up, harpazo, he's caught up in vision to heaven. There in heaven, he sees the throne of God. He sees the Lamb, who we find out is Jesus. We know he's the the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Uh, And Jesus alone is worthy to open the scroll that's in the hand of the Father. That's in chapters 4 and 5. And then in chapter 6, we see the loosing. The Lamb is loosing the the six seals, six, excuse me, six of the seven seals of that scroll that was in the Father's hand. And then we get to chapter 7, and there's that first interlude in the chronology. In that interlude, we're we're introduced to some characters that'll play different roles during the tribulation. And one of them is the sealed of Israel, the 144,000. And then there's a great multitude of believers that come out from the tribulation. That's in chapter 7. Then we get to chapters 8 and 9, and there's the opening of that seventh seal on that scroll... But as that happens, you think, okay, it's ending. Well, no, that opens up the sounding of six of the seven trumpet judgments. And then we get to chapters 10 and 11, and there's another interlude in the chronology. There were, we read about the mighty angel with a little scroll. We read about the two witnesses that are going to be, they're going to be prophesying and, and preaching in Jerusalem. And then the seventh trumpet is sounded. The, the chronology picks up again for a few verses. And then we get into chapter 12 and 13 and there's another interlude. During that time, there's a great sign that John sees in heaven, the sign of the woman with the child. And we found out as we went through chapter uh, 12 and 13 that this is the, the, uh, a picture of Israel, the nation of Israel. 
And then there's the dragon who we find out is Satan. We're introduced to those uh, in chapters 12 and 13. Uh, Also in chapters 12 to 13, we see the unholy counterfeit trinity. You know, Satan's not an original. He, he, He counterfeits everything that God does. And so we saw the dragon there in chapters 12, uh, representative of Satan, and, and he's the counterfeit of the father. And then we see the beast from the sea in chapter 13, which is the Antichrist. He's the counterfeit of Jesus the Son. And then we see the beast from the land, who's also known as the false prophet. He's the counterfeit of the Holy Spirit with signs and wonders, and, and he deceives the world. And then we get to chapter 13. Chapter 13, uh, the tribulation is taking place. We see the mark of the beast, the image of the beast. There's tremendous spiritual deception going on and unparalleled persecution in chapters 13. Now we're at chapter 14. In chapter 14, it's, it's, it's not really, a, you can't really put it down chronological because it's almost like a table of contents to the rest of the book of, of Revelation. You can kind of think of it that way. Sort of like a table of contents. There's some, there's be some main points, and then as we get into the rest of the, of the book of Revelation, it, they'll be expounded on, and we'll explain that as we go through it. But regarding that great tribulation that's uh, partly described there in chapter 13 that we got to last week, it will be unparalleled in human history. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 21, speaking of this time, he says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor, uh, no, nor ever shall be. No generation will have ever had as unparalleled spiritual deception, idolatry, uh, persecution than the generation that is going to go through the great tribulation. In chapters 13, we saw the political and military power of the Antichrist. And he'll seem to be unstoppable and all-powerful to the world. I mean, even after all, you know, those two witnesses, anybody tries to kill them or come against them, they have the ability to call down fire from heaven, just like Elijah did, the prophet in the Old Testament, to to kill their adversaries. But there's going to come a time when the Antichrist will be given the authority, he'll be allowed to kill those two witnesses. And so the world is like, these guys, these two witnesses, look at their power, but then the Antichrist will seem that much more powerful because he'll kill those two witnesses of God. So his power will seem unrivaled, unstoppable. He'll seem all-powerful. And then the spiritual deception that I mentioned, that, that the false prophet is going is to bring upon the world, it's going to be so powerful that a majority of the world, you think of all the different religions and all the different you know, uh, geopolitical things, the majority of the world is going to submit to the lie of the false prophet. Those who are left behind after the rapture of the church, there will be those that will put their trust in Christ after the rapture. Well, they're going to be hunted down and killed during this time. Those that refuse the mark of the beast, probably the same people, I'm assuming, uh, who put their trust in Christ, will be unable to buy or sell, and they are going to be hunted down and killed. Unparalleled 
uh, tribulation. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 2, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would survive. It's going to be that bad. You know, we think of North Korea. I think North Korea is the most regressive or repressive place, country in the, in, in the world, globally. It's amazing what's going on right now with their, their actually, you know, whether they actually do it or not, but, you know, President Trump's actually, you know, they're, they're actually saying they're going to stop testing nuclear weapons. We just found that out, I think, yesterday or two days ago. Amazing. But they are the most repressive regime on the planet. And we think of how bad it is for people there. That's going to be a picnic compared to the Great Tribulation. It's going to be unparalleled. Never, never before like that and never will be after that. So with that backdrop... We get to chapter 14. How do you like that for an introduction? We get there to chapter 14. All right. Verse 1. If you have your Bibles, you can read along with me. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his his father's name written on their foreheads. As I mentioned earlier, we already know who the lamb is. The lamb is Jesus. Well, Jesus is with these 144,000 standing on Mount Zion. Well, where is Mount Zion or what is Mount Zion? You know, there's a lot of people that say a lot of different things about Mount Zion. I think it's a Lutheran church here in town, but no, it's actually, um, it's going to be the earthly city of Jerusalem, okay? You go through the Old Testament and Zion is equated, Mount Zion and Zion, it's equated with Jerusalem. I'll give you an example. Isaiah 24, verse 23. says, Then the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his elders gloriously. What this chapter, what that passage is speaking about is, is kind of what we're reading about right now when the Lamb is, is on Mount Zion with the 144,000. Joel 2.32 is another passage speaking about those, these coming days. It says, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. And that's just a couple passages. There are many other passages that identify Mount Zion with Jerusalem. Okay, so we know who the Lamb is. We know uh, where Mount Zion is. Well, who are these 144,000 standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion? I believe that they are the same 144,000 that we were introduced to in Revelations chapter 7, verses 3 through 8. These are 12,000 uh, from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and I got news for some people, probably not for you here, you probably realize that, but they're not the Jehovah's Witnesses. It's not even the church, because we're going to be in heaven at this time. These are 12,000 men, and, I, and I'll explain why I think they're men, 12,000 men from each tribe of Israel who at the start of the tribulation they are going to believe that Yeshua Mashiach, Jesus Christ, is the Savior. And they're going to put their trust in Jesus Christ the same way you and I put our trust in Jesus Christ today. Because all of us were only saved by faith through the finished work of Christ on the cross. 
they'll be saved the same as we are. There's not going to be some different way. They'll, they'll be saved by putting their trust in Jesus Christ, just as you and I are. They are going to be sealed, believe it or not, just as you and I are. We're sealed as, as well. But they are also going to be supernaturally protect, excuse me, protected throughout the entire tribulation. Now, when I, when I said this to you, this should, you know, man, your heart should have jumped. Not because I scared you, I yelled too loud, maybe I did. But uh, this should cause great joy and excitement in your heart this morning. You might go, why? Well, because these 144,000 have been supernaturally protected and preserved through the Great Tribulation, which is the worst time, the worst period of history that ever has or ever will be. Those seven years will literally be hell on earth. It's when the forces of darkness seem to have completely deceived and controlled the entire world. And these men are going to have their father's names written on their foreheads. You know, we read about the mark of the beasts. Satan's a counterfeit. That mark that's on these men, he counterfeits it by having the mark of the beast. And by the way, it's interesting, that mark... When they get, they're not like these are the Baptist ones or the Lutherans or uh, Methodists, not even Calvary Chapel people. They have one identification. That's the name of the Father on them. One identification. I think that's so neat. They belong to the Father and to His Son Jesus Christ. Well, those one hundred forty-four thousand have been will have been preserved through the tribulation. And what's another thing that should be comforting to us? One hundred forty-four thousand go in. They start uh, in the tribulation, and 144,000 come out of the tribulation. Not 143,999. Not one of them is lost. Not one of them is lost. There's a picture of these guys, a type, if you will, in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 3, in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You guys... If you've gone to Sunday school or VBS or whatever, you know the story, right? Shadrach, Meshach, or Shadrach and Benny, I guess. That's another thing, you know, if you like veggie tales. But you know, they went into the, they refused to bow down to the image, to the image of Nebuchadnezzar, picture the image of the beast. And as a result, they are thrown into the furnace, the fiery furnace. But the Lord himself was with them in the furnace. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar is like, you know, like he thinks he's seen things. He's like, didn't we throw three guys in there? How come I see four? And one of them is like the Son of Man. So they entered the furnace untouched, and they exited the furnace untouched, not even smelling of smoke. This is a picture of these 144,000. But you know, that brings up kind of an interesting thing. If you've ever read the book of Daniel, it's like, where was Daniel? You ever thought about that? Wait a minute. Shadrach, Meshach, the only ones that didn't bow down to the statues. Does that mean that Daniel bowed down? Where's Daniel? There's no mention of him in this chapter. Well, in reality, he was probably, probably out of the country on the king's business. Because he had been elevated to uh, being, you know, very high up in the king's uh, government, so probably he was sent out. He was probably out of the region during that time, but it fits the picture perfectly, because there is not even uh, one mention of Daniel in the furnace. In fact, Daniel 
doesn't like go into the furnace partway or come out of the furnace partway. He's never there throughout the entire story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because while those three guys are a picture of the 144,000 Jews that are unharmed during the Great Tribulation, guess what? Daniel's a picture of you and I. Daniel's a picture of the church that will have been raptured prior to the tribulation and will not be going through the 70th week of Daniel, as the Bible calls it. The Bible calls uh, the tribulation the time of Jacob's trouble. The church will not be there during that time. So we're introduced to these 144,000 at the beginning of the tribulation in Revelation chapter 7. Here in Revelation 14, we see them standing with Jesus at the end of the tribulation and the start of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. We'll get to that later on. Like I said, it's like a, it's like a snapshot of coming events that we'll read about as we go through the rest of the book of Revelation. There's some Old Testament passages that prophesy this event, by the way. Psalms 2 Verses 1 through 6, and I'll just read. I didn't put it on the screen, but I'll, I'll read it to you, or you can look it up if you want or make a note of it. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill on Zion. This is speaking of what we're reading here in chapter 14. Another passage, Micah chapter 4 verses 1 through 7. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. This is speaking of the millennial, uh, millennial reign of Christ. Continuing on, it says, For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under, under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." For all people walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord of our God forever and ever. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame. I will gather the outcast and those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. And it ends with this. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on forever and for even forever. So we have this 144,000 that they, they are sealed at the beginning of the tribulation. 144,000 exit the tribulation at the end of seven years and they go right into the millennium with Jesus Christ. But they're not the only individuals that are saved during the tribulation. There are others that are going to come to faith in Christ during the tribulation. They're going to be sealed as well as those 144,000 as you and I have been sealed if we've put our trust in Christ for our salvation. But those saints 
are going to be martyred for their faith. Only these 144,000 will have been supernaturally, physically preserved throughout the entire tribulation. They're, they're, they're not going to experience death. They're gonna, they're, they'll be born whenever, whatever period in time in their lives the tribulation happens. They're, they're Jewish. They're going to put their trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. They'll be sealed and protected during the tribulation. They'll stand with Christ on Mount Zion and they'll enter into the millennium with him to reign with him for a thousand years. They'll never experience death. God's going to use these 144,000 who are, you might go, well, why is he supernaturally preserving those 144,000? Because they're going to be his instruments to affect a great harvest of souls during the tribulation. They have a unique ministry. God has a purpose and a plan for their lives, like I mentioned with these kids here this morning. And their, his plan and his purpose is to use them as his instruments during the worst time that the world will ever experience. You know, you and I, we don't have the same guarantee as these guys. God has not promised us that we're, we're going to be spared physical harm. Some of you have already experienced physical harm in your life. We're not guaranteed that we're not going to physically die in this life. But those 144,000 uh, will have been spared. They are promised to survive it. But regardless... We should take great comfort because they have been preserved through the most difficult, most darkest time of any generation. You know, you, you talk to some people and they go, man, kids have it so easy nowadays. You know, in my generation, they talk about how bad it was in their generation and stuff. There's no generation that will have it as bad as that generation. And these guys have been preserved through it. None of them lose their faith in Christ Jesus. That should be comforting to you and I because they're going to emerge on the other side of the greatest tribulation the world has ever experienced victorious and if you have uh, if you have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning you have been sealed for eternal life you have been sealed for eternal life Paul wrote in Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14 in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation in whom also having believed you were sealed with the holy spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our redemption until the redemption uh, of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory John when he was uh, excuse me Jesus when he was speaking in John chapter 6 verse 39 and 40 he said this is the will of the father who sent me that of all he has given me i should lose nothing but should raise it up at the last day you know i lose things left and right we got back from the men's conference and i'm like oh, where's my bible i think i left it in kansas city i got to turn around and drive back there you know and and then i realized i had stuck it i had shoved it in a sleeve in my suitcase there and it was so i had it you know but i lose things if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, He's not going to lose you. He's not going to lose you. He's going to raise you up at that last day. Verse 40 of John chapter 6 says, And this is the will of Him who sent me, of, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That should encourage you and I this morning. No matter what you're going through, 
You've been sealed for eternity. 1 Peter 3, uh, 1 verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. So when we went down to Kansas City yesterday, we left on Friday, or two days ago, we left on Friday morning, Chad and I, and uh, we were going to stay at the Courtyard Marriott, and so we had it punched into our phones, and we're driving, and we get to Kansas City, and we're, we're kind of wrapped, getting close, and, and we see the Courtyard Marriott sign, and, and we see the building, and so we turned off the cell phone, the map thing, and drove in there, and I walk in there, and uh, they're like, hi, and I go, yeah, hi, I'm Don, I've got a reservation, and they go, we don't see your name in here, I'm like, oh! You know, during the headlights, like, what did I do? And then she goes, what's probably happened, there's another courtyard Marriott a mile down the road, and you're probably reserved there, And uh, which was kind of a bummer, because that one was like, this looked like the Taj Mahal, and then we got to the other one, and it was like, oh, it's okay. <laughs> but I want you to, but seriously, think about this. How many times has something like that happened? You've made a reservation, you've done something, and you get there, and it's like, it, they lost her. They can't find your name or something. Can you imagine putting your trust in Christ for your salvation? You get to heaven, and then all of a sudden they're looking through the book. Oh, we don't see your name in the book of life. Are you sure you registered with us? You know, I mean, you know, it's not going to happen. Your salvation is guaranteed, and you are going to. Your name is written there. It's reserved in heaven for you. I think this is why Paul said this in 2 Timothy 1, verse 12. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep, that, uh, keep what I have committed to him until that day. Now, I, I've thrown a lot of scripture at you, and, and I don't want to just bombard you with verse after verse after verse, but there's a reason why I did that. The reason why I brought through all those different passages is because it's not an obscure principle. There's lots of scriptural support. It's not based on one obscure passage. Sometimes people take one little verse and they they develop a doctrine based on one little verse. This isn't that. There's so much scripture uh, that, in fact, Paul was completely convinced that the Lord would see him uh, keep him and see him through this life because as the writer of Hebrews says, he's the author of our faith and he's the finisher of our faith. So if, if you're not encouraged by anything that we read this morning, I hope you're encouraged by that. I hope you're encouraged by that. As we saw with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the Lord was with them in the fiery furnace. The Lord is going to be with these 144,000 during the great tribulation and the Lord is going to be with you in whatever tribulation you're going through or whatever tribulation you're going to go through. He's promised to never leave and forsake, never forsake us. Amen, absolutely. When Paul was in Corinth, we read in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, it says, The Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid. Why would the Lord say that? Because Paul probably was afraid. The Lord wouldn't say that if he wasn't. He says, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you. No one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. 
Paul, what an amazing ministry he had and the, the amount of hardships he went through, but God was with him in the midst of it. When Paul, towards the end of his ministry, he was almost torn apart by an angry mob at Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 23, verse 11, we read, The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. When Paul was in prison in Rome, shortly before his death, the last epistle that he wrote was 2 Timothy and in 2 Timothy 4, verses 16 and 17, he says, At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. Have you ever had that in your life? Everyone bails out on you, and you're there by yourself. Paul felt that way. At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. So that my message, so that the message might be preached fully through me, and that all Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Throughout Paul's life, and in the most difficult times, he knew God's with me. God's there. Not only that, but he's promised to never leave nor forsake you. And you know, I can say that till I'm blue in the face and I can believe it. I can memorize those scriptures that say that. But you know what? I don't think it's until you go through a time in your life where you have nowhere else to turn, you've ran out of options, that the Lord shows up faithful. He's promised to never leave her nor forsake us. Well, let's continue on here. Verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. So now we've got a few more things we've got to figure out here. The voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. If you were to look through the book of Revelation, you go back to chapter 1 of Revelation, we would see that that's the same description Jesus speaks. So maybe this is Jesus speaking here. A lot of commentators think it is, even some uncommon ones. <laughs> um, but what's interesting to me, if you go down to Revelation chapter 19, verse 6, there's the voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, like the voice of loud thun thunder. And in the context in, in, in Revelation 19, verse 6, it's a great multitude. And so I think in the context here, based on verses 2 and 3, I think that this is the voice of a great multitude singing a song. And John also heard the sounds, the sound of harpists playing their harps. So listen, if you guys don't know how to play a harp, Teresa and Sandy, they're going to be giving lessons for the first hundred years of the millennium for free. First hundred years are free. The next 900 years, they might charge you a little bit, but they're going to be giving lessons. So. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, by the way. I just want to bring this up. I have this in my notes, and I've been thinking about that. You know, there are Christian, and I don't want to knock any denominations, but I, I just wonder why some denominations think that true spiritual worship is, it has to be a cappella, no instruments. I, that doesn't make sense to me, because when I read in heaven, there's instruments. 
and harps, no guitars, but harps anyways. I mean, sorry, Luke. <laughs> well, in verse 3 it says, They sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. So who is singing this song? Well, I can tell you what, it's not the 144,000 on the earth. They're the only ones, the Bible says, who can learn it. It doesn't say that they're singing it. It says they, they're the only ones that can learn it. So who is singing this? I believe, and it's, this is just my opinion, that these are the saints, both Jewish and Gentile, who put their trust in Christ during the Great Tribulation that are singing this song. I think they're the only ones singing it. And uh, only the 144,000 who also go through the Great Tribulation, because those saints that are singing it have been martyred. But they've gone through at least a portion of the Great Tribulation. These 144,000 are the only other ones who will have gone through the Great Tribulation, who know what they've gone through, who are able to learn the song of the Tribulation saints. The church isn't singing this particular song. We're singing a song in Revelation 5, verses 9 through 10. I'll read it to you. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. That's going to be our song. We're going to be singing that in heaven. But the tribulation saints will be singing this song. And only those 144,000 are the ones that can learn it. And you go, well, what's the deal with it? Remember, this great tribulation will be unparalleled in human history. I'm going to read that verse in Matthew 24, 21 again. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. See, only those saints who go through this unique time, who have uh, experienced the most difficult time, uh, and, and these 144,000 are going to experience God's unique provision and presence in a way that others won't experience. And, and that's their song. And, you know, I think about that in our own lives. You know, each of us, we really have our own song to sing to the Lord based on our relationship, with what the Lord's brought us through, how he's proven himself faithful to us. And our, you know, we sing a song that maybe someone else can't sing it quite the same as us because they haven't gone through the same thing as us. We should all have a unique song. That's just singing to the Lord, worshiping him. In Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3, it says, I waited because David had an experience with the Lord. And, and you can see that in his song. Uh, Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. Each of us have our own song to sing to the Lord based on what he's done in our lives. That's, that's what we talk about, a relationship with Jesus Christ. Relationship. Things happen in a relationship. You know, Teresa and I, we, we, can, we can say things that are, that, you know, I could, I, could, I could say a phrase or, or a key word or something. She would right away identify with what I'm saying because she and I have experienced something together. That's the same with your relationship with Jesus Christ. We respond and praise him for the unique things he's done in each one of our lives. Well, you know, I, I just want to keep going here. I, you know, I am so glad verses 1 through 3 
are before verses 4 through 5. I'm really happy about that. You might go, why? Listen, if the order, think about this. If the order of those verses had been reversed, these 144 young Jewish men would have earned the mark of the Father upon them because of all the things that they did at the end there in verses 4 and 5. They would have earned the mark. But instead, we're told that they're given the mark at the beginning of the tribulation when they put their trust in Jesus Christ. And verses 4 and 5 is their response based on the mark. I think it's a very key point. So what's verses 4 and 5? These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Well, right away, the first question, is this, is this a literal, are they literally virgins, or is it symbolic? Uh, their virginity, is it symbolic? Because, you know, as far as you and I know, based on Scripture, we know that marriage doesn't defile. I mean, they're not defiled because they're married, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, most of you are like, I'm glad about that. Right? Hebrews 13, verse 4, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Which is interesting because Satan, you know, he takes the marriage between one biological male and one biological female, which is beautiful. It's beautiful. And the marriage bed is undefiled. And it's, and it's a godly relationship, God-ordained marriage. But Satan takes that, which is beautiful and godly, and he twists it and distorts it. And sex outside of marriage, either before marriage or, or you know, extra marriage, marital sex, it's a counterfeit of the enemy. It's a ripoff. It's a ripoff of what God had beautifully created for one man and one woman committed, committed throughout their, their lifetime together. It's a ripoff. And the world doesn't, you know, you younger people, the world, you know, uh, it, it looks so attractive and so appealing and it draws you, but it's, it's a lie and it's Satan's ripoff. It's Satan's ripoff. We also know in Proverbs 18.22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So, not you know, not being defiled with women, I, I don't know if that means that they're married or not married. I'm not sure. But Jesus, speaking of the great tribulation, said this in Matthew 24, verse 19, But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. In other words, it's not good to have a, married, a wife and a family during those days. It's going to be so intense. And even regarding the persecution that was happening in Paul's day, when there was persecution in Paul's day, he wrote in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 25 and 26, he says, Now concerning virgins, I have no command from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made worthy. Verse 26, I suppose, therefore, that it, this that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Listen, think about it. It's one thing if someone comes to you and says, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And you go, yes, I do. And they say, we're going to kill you. If you uh, we're going to give you one more chance. We're going to kill you right here and now if you deny Christ. It's easy for me to say, you know what? Take me. <laughs> Jesus Christ is my Lord. And say, I'm not going to deny him. 
and I, I you know I could do it fairly easily I, I at least I assume I could that's one thing it's an entirely other thing if they've got your wife or your child next to you and they say if you don't deny Christ we're going to kill them that's a lot that's a different that brings it to a whole different level so during that time, it's, it's, it may just be a natural thing for these guys. That it's like, this is too difficult. We don't want to go through that. I, I, we're not going to be married. I mean, I, that's, I don't know. I'm not sure. So are they vir- virgins in the literal sense? Maybe. But they're certainly, 100% I can guarantee this, they're undefiled by sexual immorality. Definitely. And most certainly they're virgins in the spiritual sense. And I'll explain that to you. What does that mean, virgins in the spiritual sense? In the Old Testament, Israel was called the virgin of Israel. Jeremiah 18, verse 13, Therefore thus says the Lord, Ask now among the Gentiles, Who has heard such, a th- of such things? The virgin of Israel has done a very horrible thing. Idolatry is pictured as adultery in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 23, verse 37, For they have committed adultery... And blood is on their hands. Verse 20, uh, they have committed adultery with their idols. Idolatry is equated with adultery in the Old Testament. So during the most idolatrous time on the earth, these 144,000 are going to be undefiled by sexual immorality and spiritual idolatry. And you know, you look at our culture right now, how difficult it is right now. You know, we think about our kids and they're just they're being bombarded and the, the media and the internet and everything, they're being bombarded with, with idolatry, sexual immorality and stuff. It's going to be that much worse because the, the church is going to be out of there. That restraining refluence of the church is going to be removed during that, those seven years. How much more wicked and evil and, and debased and everything it's going to be. And yet those guys are going to be sexually pure and spiritually pure. I want to just read something to you. I got this uh, this morning text to me from my wife, actually. Sales of the Holy Bible and biblical-based teaching is set to be banned in California in the near future, thanks to Governor Jerry Brown and the state assembly who have combined to force a bill through the state assembly that claims the Bible promotes hate speech against gays, lesbians, and transgender people. Assembly Bill 2943 will threaten the freedom of religion and First Amendment rights of Christians in California using the state's consumer fraud statute to restrict religious freedom and free speech. The bill seeks to ban sales of the Bible because it includes verses that fall outside what Governor Brown considers acceptable teaching on sexuality issues. The controversial bill, which will also ban any form of speech or written material that promotes traditional Christian views on marriage and sexuality, has already made its way through the California State Assembly after it was approved on the floor Thursday. The bill now goes to the Senate for a vote. Randy Thomason with SaveCalifornia.com says the bill is extremely broad and will affect just about anything helping people seek religious guidance. This is very expansive, very tyrannical, and absolutely squashing free speech, 
religious freedom, and basic choice of people. This is an anti-freedom, anti-American bill, Thomason told CBN News. Essentially, churches and Christian schools that share biblical teaching on the subject will be open to lawsuits. CBS News asked Thomason if this bill will lead to a ban on Bibles or even books from other faiths like the Koran. And this is what he says. Well, you can see this law going into effect. A church uh, bookstore selling the Bible, of course, selling a book about marriage or sexual purity. You could see a member of the public or even a member of the state government coming and saying, hey, that's illegal. If AB 2943 clears California's Senate and is signed into law, it will negatively impact Christian counselors, bookstores, church conferences, as well as medical and health professionals. The bill also seeks to ban biblical-based counseling for those seeking Christian guidance, as the traditional Christian counseling does not fit into Governor Jerry Brown's contemporary scientific view of the world. Matt Staver, founder and chairman of Liberty Council, told CBN News that what makes, that's what makes this bill especially dangerous is that California often leads the charge in pushing the LGBTQ, or L, LGBTQ legislative agenda. While some changes have been overdue and just, many others infringe on ordinary Americans' constitutional rights. So in other words... What I was just sharing with you could be illegal in the very near future, at least in California, if that passes. Why did I bring that up? We're already seeing an attack on biblical morality. It's going to be that much more worse. It's going to be that much more you know, tough during the Great Tribulation, yet these men are going to remain pure during that time. Whether or not they're married or not, they're going to remain pure. It says that these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. You know, Jesus said in John ten twenty seven, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. What does it mean to follow Jesus? John said in, uh, Jesus said in John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. See, the world during that time, they're going to be in spiritual darkness. The world today is in spiritual darkness. And following Jesus, we're not like the rest of the world walking in spiritual darkness. We have the light of the world. We have the, we have the light. We have the revelation of Jesus Christ. We won't walk in darkness. There's another aspect to following Jesus. In John 12 verses 24 to the 26. Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. What did Jesus take? Jesus took the path of the cross, denying himself, laying down his life. If we're going to follow him, we're going to lay down our lives. We're going to deny ourselves. That's following Jesus. You know, Peter and John, after Jesus ascended into heaven, after, after Pentecost, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and, and then they were going around just preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in Acts chapter 5, the Sanhedrin gets them. 
and brings them before the Sanhedrin, and, and they're, they're threatening them. And, and I think it was Gamaliel had, had those guys go out of the chambers, and then he's talking to this fellow uh, Pharisees, and he says I, in Acts 5.38, he says, And I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you can't overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him, but listen to this. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. See, identifying uh, following Jesus is not only identifying with his resurrection, but it's also identifying with his reproach and his shame. And we're heading into that in our generation, folks. We're heading into being mocked. We were already mocked, but we're going to be the enemy of the public pretty soon. It's, it's happening. But following Jesus is also bearing his reproach and his shame. What else we find about these men? It says these were redeemed from among men. That, that's a, that word redeemed, it means to pay a ransom, to purchase a slave for his freedom. And, and the whole idea is that Jesus Christ offered himself. You know, when you, when you kidnap somebody, well, hopefully you don't kidnap somebody. When somebody is kidnapped, you know, they, they send a ransom note usually. You know, it's like, okay, you give us X amount of dollars and I'm going to release this person. There's an exchange. You give me money, I'll give that person back. Well, that's what Jesus paid. We were, we were kidnapped, or so to speak. We were, we were in bondage to sin and death. And Jesus paid the price for us. There was an exchange made and we were released But there's a consequence of being purchased, of being ransomed, and that is that the buyer has the right of possession. The buyer has the right of possession. You know, I've come across so many people who they're, they've, they've prayed the prayer, they say, you know. They've got their fire insurance, basically. They, they, they're, they're saved from an eternity in hell, but they don't. that's as far as it goes. They don't want to submit any more than necessary to the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't want to make him the Lord of their lives. They just want salvation. But now I want to do my own thing. I've met so many people like that. I have to ask each one of us, man, is Jesus Christ truly our Lord and our Savior? Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 6.19. He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price? Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Your body and your spirit, both. You belong to him now. 1 Peter 1, 13 and 19. Therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. 
a few more verses for you. Paul said this in Titus 2.14, speaking of Jesus. He says, He gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works, which leads to the next characteristic of these 144,000. They are first fruits to God and to the Lamb. The whole idea of first fruits, it's the, it's the first ripe fruits of a harvest, but what it indicates is that there's more ripe fruit to follow. There's a greater harvest to follow after them. And in Revelation, we were introduced to these 144,000 in the beginning of Revelation chapter 7. But in verse 9, it says, And after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with white robes, excuse me, with palm branches in their hands. These are probably a result of the ministry of those 144,000. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15, he says, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted, or the King James actually says, addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. The household of Stephanas, they had a reputation. They were the first fruits. They were the first people to come to faith there in that region there in Achaia. And it's interesting, their household... Their parents, in other words, led by example. They involved all the children, and they were fruitful, bringing others to Christ. See, these 144,000, they know their time is short. I mean, they're going to have the Bible. They're going to know. You know, we don't know when the day or the, or the hour is of the rapture. But once the, the, the rapture occurs, you read your Bible, they're told exactly how long it's going to be. They know exactly when judgment day comes. So they know their time is short and they're going to make the most of their time. They're going to occupy till he returns. They're going to be zealous for good works, which leads me to this. They know, hey, I've got seven years. Now, if they were procrastinators like me, they go, you know what? Six years, I'm going to party. Seventh year, I'll get really serious. I'll just double down and I'll really, you know. They know in the entire time they are completely devoted to following the Lord, ministering. You and I don't know if we have seven years. We don't even know if we have 15 minutes from now. How much more should we be occupying till Jesus comes? How much more should we be zealous, being addicted to reaching others to Christ, being all about VBS? Hey, I want to participate in VBS because we might, there might be a child here that's going to come to faith in Jesus Christ and be the next Billy Graham. It could happen, guys. It could happen. Verse 5, it says, And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And that word deceit in the King James is called guile. It means to bait. It's in the sense of a decoy. You know, when you go fishing and you don't use live bait, you use something that looks like a, looks like a worm, but, but it's, it's, it's bait. It's, meant to de- it's a decoy. It's meant to deceive the fish to think it's a, fi- a worm so that it bites it. That's what this word is. These guys, they don't lie, they don't deceive in their words, but it goes deeper than that. Because Jesus said in Matthew 12, 24, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Their own heart, it's in their hearts. 
First Peter 1.22 says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth of the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. See, it starts in our hearts. <laughs> you know, we can bait or decoy people with our words in order to manipulate a response, right? Manipulators are great at that. They, they, they say things to kind of bait people to get them to do what they want them to do. We can also bait people with our words in order to create strife among brethren. We are all now familiar with the term race baiting, right? We've seen it so much going on in our culture. Paul said in Ephesians 4.15, Speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. We're to speak the truth in love. We're to be open, transparent, and honest in love with one another. We wouldn't be open and transparent and then you plow over people. We don't want to do that. We want to use be in love, you know, with love. Not only that, but they're without fault before the throne of God. In other words, they're justified before the Father. Um, interesting. Paul says this in Colossians. He says in you, in Colossians 1.21, excuse me, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked words, yet now he has reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if you indeed continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. We come to faith in Christ, we're holy and blameless before the Father. The minute you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God sees you as a saint. And yet, we read in Galatians 2, Peter came to Antioch. And while he was there, Paul says this. He says uh, in Galatians 2.11, he says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Wait a minute. He was blamed. We're blameless, right? And yet, Paul looks at at Peter, says Peter was to be blamed. Why? Because he says, For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. He was a hypocrite. Even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. And so Paul, he rebuked Peter in front of everybody because of his hypocrisy. And yet Peter standing before the Father, is blameless. He's justified, just as if he hadn't sinned. But as a, as, you know, just like you and I, we, the Father sees us as, as, as blameless. But in this instance, Peter was in sin. What, how, do you, how, do you, how do you correlate that? How do, you, how do you figure that out? You know the qualifications for elders and deacons, Titus 1, verse 7. For a bishop must be blameless as a stern of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. That's, that's a tall order. I can tell you right now, I'm not blameless. I've committed sins. I've, I've done things. I've, I, you know, you could ask my wife. Yeah, he gets a quick temper. Every once in a while, he just, stay away, you know, whatever. Peter, when he was at Antioch, this verse that I just read you, wouldn't have, he wouldn't have qualified to be a bishop, and yet he was. So what's the difference? Well, here's the difference. Being blameless is not being perfect, because no one's perfect. 
Being blameless means there's nothing in your life that someone could assign blame to you right now. So you go, yeah, but I just sinned. Well, that's the point. The Bible says if we commit sin, we confess it, and he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. In other words, being blameless means you keep a short account with God. You don't hang on to your sin. You don't walk in your sin and, and just continue in practicing it. You repent of your sin. And you, you keep, that, you keep that, that close relationship with the Lord. That's what this is talking about. And so, yeah, these 144,000, are they perfect? No, they're not perfect. But every time they sin, they deal with their sin. They repent and they're cleansed and they're, they're walking. There's, no one can say, hey, they got this against them because there's, there's no blame to assign to them because they've been, they've been forgiven and they're walking in that and living in that. So this, I'm just going to conclude here, and I know we've gone a little longer, but bear with me just for a few moments. The 144,000, they're going to come to faith in Christ during the most unique time period in history. But how they come to faith is not unique, okay? I want you to understand that it's not unique. They're saved by grace through faith in the finished work of cross, Christ on the cross, just like you and I are today. There's no difference. They will be uniquely protected during the great tribulation having been sealed by God well you and I have been sealed by the Holy Spirit as I pointed out in those scriptures they will be presented spotless and without blame before the throne of God and you and I will be presented spotless and without blame before the throne of God as well In response to God's grace and salvation, these 144,000 are going to live spiritually undefiled lives. Listen, under the most difficult, most tempting, most just gross, debased period in time. You think the internet's bad now. What do you think it's going to be like during the, during the tribulation? They're going to, and yet they're going to live spiritually undefiled lives. They're going to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And for some, well, not for the 144,000, they won't die. But the other people that will come to faith in Christ, they're going to they're gonna die for their faith. Under the most difficult circumstances, they're going to follow the Lord. And get this, in the most difficult and trying and most spiritually oppressive time of any generation that ever existed on the earth, they're going to be zealous for good works and being fruitful. Being, they're going to be fruitful during the tribulation, leading others to Christ. That blows me away. So the reason why I only wanted to focus on these verses is because, you know, I've got this Bible that I got from Luke and Martha, and it's great. It's bigger letters and stuff. And I'm like, most of my other Bibles have got writing all over. But this Bible I got, you know what, I don't want to write in it because I'd like to read from it. And sometimes I get distracted by my notes, and I'm like, I just want it to be just pure you know and uh but i, I get i'm at the point i was like man I, I, I gotta write some stuff so i'm starting to write in this bible and and you know i read through revelation uh, a number of times before we started the study in revelation i kind of wanted to get the word in me and get get you know just get grounded in it and stuff and i wrote made a comment and so when i'm preparing for revelation chapter 14 i saw this little note that i wrote and i go what i'm reading it going what is that well a lot of my notes are like that but um it says this it says if them how much more me if them or how much more we excuse me see i can't read my own notes <laughs> if them how much more me, we listen 
we can have an excuse why we fell or why we're not following the Lord or why we're not fruitful. Things are so tough in my life. And I'm not saying things are not tough in our lives, okay? Things are tough. I don't minimize what anybody is going through. But look at these guys. In the most difficult time that any generation has, the most spiritually oppressive, the most violent, the most, the most wicked time, hell on earth, these guys have not walked away from the faith. They're, they're ministering. They're fruitful. If they can do it, how much more should we be doing it? Amen? All right, why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Actually, we got a worship song. Why don't you come up, Lord? <laughs> I thank you for your patience in uh, putting up with a little longer message. We were, again, at the conference, we met a guy who's at a Calvary Chapel in Arkansas, and, uh, or Missouri, excuse me, and he said, yeah, he goes, uh, our pastor goes an hour and a half every Sunday morning, and I go, oh, I don't know if I could do that in Viking territory, I don't know. <laughs> thank you for bearing with us. Heavenly Father, heard this morning, Lord, what a testimony these men will have during the tribulation. And Lord, I, I, I look at us, and, and Lord, if they are that zealous, Lord, in the most trying time, if they are that committed to you, if they follow you wherever you go, how much more should we, Lord, we don't have the, the trials that they have or that they will have, Lord, how much more should we in this life? And so, Lord, I just thank you uh, that you've spoken to your church this morning. And Lord, I pray that each of us would respond in obedience to what we've studied this morning. We love you and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for each and every person here this morning. Lord, I, I pray, uh, Lord, that you would just guide us through this week, Lord, that, uh, Lord, we would follow you wherever you go. Lord, that uh, we would remain blameless before you, Lord, keeping a short account uh, and walking in, in holiness before you, Lord God. And Father, I pray that we might be fruitful in reaching others uh, because we know, Lord, uh, the times are getting darker and darker. As we read about that bill in California, that's once that's going around. And Lord, we just pray, Lord God, that uh, Lord our lives would be fruitful for Your kingdom, for You, Lord. And so we just lift up this time. I ask Your blessing upon Your people, and thank You, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.